Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have another fascinating conversation to share with you. This time I had yet another MIT nuclear scientist uh, on the podcast. Uh, recently I developed this interest in nuclear energy. I'm in the solar industry and I wanted to learn a lot more about nuclear. It seems uh, you know, very underrated. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of misinformation out there, so I want to do my part in spreading the right information about nuclear by inviting on experts in the field. Uh, if you haven't already heard my previous uh, episode with uh, nuclear scientist Michael Short, I recommend you go check that one out as well. Uh, these are both excellent conversations and excellent guests. Uh, today, my conversation is with a man named Bren Phillips. Uh, Bren has worked on all sorts of exciting uh, projects, including Project Prometheus, which was uh, related to nuclear space propulsion technology, uh, as well as a variety of other you know, more complicated sciences. Overall, I had a great time talking to Bren, very interesting guy, and I'm sure you will uh, you know, take away a lot from this conversation. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Bren Phillips. Hey, Brent, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. So for the audience out there who maybe is not uh, familiar with your work just yet, would you mind giving them a little bio about uh, you know, what you've been working on, a little bit about your background and your career? Uh, yeah, so my background, I started studying nuclear engineering uh, Right out of high school, I went to college at the University of Missouri Rolla, which is now called Missouri S and T. I got my bachelor's in nuclear science and nuclear engineering there. Um, I started work at Bettis Atomic Power Laboratory. Uh, it's one of the two uh, Department of Energy labs that um, support the nuclear navy in the United States, uh, from cradle to grave for on the nuclear power nuclear power side. Um, but I actually went there and started my work there as working on uh, Project Prometheus, which was a project with NASA. Uh, where we were designing a spacecraft to go survey some of the moons of Jupiter to look for life. Uh, that project event got canceled, as most uh, space propulsion projects do. Uh, I worked. At, I transferred in Bettis to work in the uh, nuclear power training unit down in Charleston, South Carolina, and trained sailors for a couple of years on how to operate nuclear uh, nuclear propulsion plants on Navy vessels. Uh, after that, I went to graduate school at MIT. I uh, got my master's and PhD in uh, and nuclear science and engineering, mostly focusing on boiling and boiling phenomena, looking at enhanced heat transfer with boiling, enhanced critical heat flux, which is a transition that boiling goes through that's usually bad. And um, looked at a lot of uh, flow boiling, looking at bu bubble phenomena, bubble parameters, trying to better understand the boiling process. Uh, after I got my PhD, I did a post short postdoc at MIT, working on some compact heat exchangers for like which we'll probably talk about at some point. Um, and then I went to work at Alden Research Laboratory, which is out in middle Massachusetts. Um, and it worked on some more work with nuclear power plants on some safety issues, specifically GSI-191, which was an issue the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had identified that plants needed to respond to regarding uh, if they'd had like a major loss of coolant accident they're worried about think about some of the safety systems not functioning properly due to clogging and whatnot of debris that could have gotten into the recirculation systems. Uh, and then I came back after that, a position opened up at MIT as a research scientist, and I've been here for about three years. Uh, now working on some more of the same kind of stuff on enhancing boiling heat transfer, looking at accident tolerant fuels for nuclear reactors. So some things that could help prevent the issues that happened at Fukushima and whatnot. Uh, to kind of give uh, more, even in current generation reactors, more time for the operators to take action before you start having fuel damage. 
and we work on a lot of things for enhancing current fuel systems. Uh, one project I'm working on now is for some other coatings that not only uh, could be accident tolerant, but also have some economic benefits for uh, making the fuel uh, last longer as far as the cladding so that you could potentially have a longer fuel lifetimes. Wow. So, I mean, right off the bat, I got to say, I, I truly respect the work that you do because uh, we need really smart people like you solving these problems because I would never be able to figure it out. And these are big, important problems. Yeah, yeah there's a, it's, they're, they're definitely important. Sometimes it's hard to get the uh, support for them, you know, because uh, nuclear is, has, has gone through ups and downs in public opinion, you know, and so while it's a very um, green source as far as like CO2 emissions and, and, you know, other contaminants into the atmosphere, it's, you know, it has, it has its own unique problems that, that often concern both uh, the public and politicians, so. Yeah, that's that's one of the strangest things about nuclear. One of the reasons why, you know, I was excited to have you on the show is that, you know, when you look at the benefits versus the, you know, sort of the downsides or some of the risks, uh, the benefits clearly outweigh them, especially when you look at, you know, the history of nuclear and how effective it has been and, and the low CO2 emissions. And uh, I'm, I'm personally uh, coming to you from California where I'm involved in the solar industry out here, you know, very green industry. And uh, you know, it was sort of interesting to me looking at nuclear and wondering why it's not more popular and ultimately coming to the conclusion that a lot of people come to is that it's really just hasn't been marketed well, hasn't, uh, you know, sort of set in the minds of Americans or people around the world in, in a way that, you know, they, they're they open to it, accepting of it and and excited about it, or at least as excited as they should be about it. Yeah, the, the the marketing has has not been good. We always joke around here that you know we need to hire Apple for to do our marketing for us. <laughs> we don't do a very good job about it, you know, because nuclear is kind of just sets in the background. You know, it just produces. You know, they're built. We have around a hundred plants right now operating in the United States. You know, they operate twenty four seven, day and night. They provide what's called base load power um, to the grid, so they they run at a hundred percent power all the time. Because nuclear power plants are extremely cheap to operate. They're expensive to build initially so they have a huge capital investment up front but if you're not running them when they're you're not making money because they you know the fuel is actually extremely cheap they don't so i don't know what you guys pay for electricity out in california but around here it's somewhere you know around 10, the marginal cost of electricity is somewhere around 12 to 15 cents per kilowatt hour um when and the marginal cost for a reactor for fuel costs is like less than one cent per kilowatt hour so it's the fuel costs are way less than any other uh, any other method, from possibly barring solar, since you don't have any fuel costs there. But but it, but it can provide baseload power 24/7, you know, at, at a very reasonable cost. But it does have the large capital expense, which has been kind of the one of the impediments to getting it going, because uh, uh, utility has to really commit to a long-term vision of of uh, their power of their of their profile of what kind of power they're producing. And so it's a huge capital cost, you know, it takes years to, you know, traditionally there's some newer plants out here that hopefully we'll, we'll see coming online that are, that are going to be shorter, but traditionally they take a very long time to build, you know, six or seven years to build this, you know, one gigawatt electric plant. And so it's, and there's a lot of risks involved in that, you know, as far as the capital is needed to do that, because it can be, you know, six, you know, it can be billions of dollars to build one of these plants. Wow, less than one cent per kilowatt hour. Yeah, that's what the fuel costs. Yeah, so I mean, there's yeah. some other operational costs wrapped in there for the staff and maintenance of the plant and whatnot. But the fuel is, you know, typically less than one cent, 0.8 cent per kilowatt hour. So it's uh, it's very cost effective on that front. The problem is that you know, natural gas is actually overall can be for if you're looking at building a new plant because of the capital costs and and time value of money that you have to put into a building a nuclear plant, it's actually cheaper per kilowatt hour to, on a new plant to do like natural gas because natural gas right now is so cheap, you know, and natural gas plants have extremely low capital costs. And so it's a lower risk for, for uh, utilities to do. They're also nice because you can flip them on, run power when you need it for peak power and flip them off, you know, and they're, and they're off. Whereas nuclear power plants have some, uh, more issues with that. You can't just turn them on and off. They take a day to start up. And, and if you want to do power changes, they're slow to respond to, to do power. They don't follow load very well. 
And obviously when you shut them down, you still have to, you know, provide cooling to the reactor core and stuff like that. Uh, some of the newer designs are, have some more passive safety built in where they, you know, do, do more of that on their own. But, you know, the traditional plants like we have now, the generation two, that's the current fleet of pressurized water and boiling water reactors. You know, they just, they, they have to, they basically have to be manned all the time and there's something going on to maintain the plant, even if they're, even if they're offline and, you know, doing a refueling or whatever. Wow. Well, I mean, e even still, that that's pretty amazing, you know, and, and to give some context, uh, for what people are currently paying in California right now for electricity is typically around 16, 17, 18 cents per kilowatt hour, but can get as high as 41 cents in some parts of California, which is, you know, uh, outrageous. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, out here, I, yeah. out here we, I, we're about, like where I live, it's about 25. I don't, the marginal cost is a little low. I, I end up paying about 25 on average over my bill. I think the marginal cost is something somewhere around high, high teens, but yeah, that, that's 41 cents. That's pretty insane. That's like diesel generator level of, of power costs. Like that's, <laughs> that's crazy. Um, and you know, it's funny is one of the charges that people pay out here in California is a nuclear decommissioning fee because they started shutting down the nuclear power plants. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been a problem on places where it's become untenable, where the political climate has not been pro-nuclear, you know, because they're huge, they're huge baseload power production, you know, just uh, each plant typically is around a gigawatt electric, you know, and that's a, it takes a lot, a lot of, it's hard to replace that overnight, you know, without just building it, you know, doing a ton, ton of natural gas plants, uh, you know, and so it's, it, California in particular, you know, has to kind of plan how they're going to meet their, their energy needs as, they, as these plants shut down. I mean, some of the plants have been shut down, but because most of the plants in the United States that are currently operating were put on a 40-year license, and most of them have gotten a 20-year extension, so their the plant life will be 60 years. Potentially, they could some of them may even file for a second extension for another 20 years. But there's, I think there were even a few in California that didn't even get there. I'm not 100% sure, but you know, in some in some places there, that where it's been politically, where the political climate has not been good, you know, they just the plants just didn't file for the extension because they're there was so much political pressure against them. Yeah, it's it's amazing what political pressure will do to a technology that's so, you know, has so much potential. I mean, uh, I really did not know much about nuclear, even up until, you know, just recently sort of diving into it more, uh, you know, more in depth. But one thing that really caught my attention was a couple of years ago, I was in Norfolk, Virginia, and there was all these aircraft carriers lined up. And I learned that each aircraft carrier had, two nuclear reactors essentially fueling them at all times yep yeah so they, they all all the current fleet is the a4w fleet the lat the enterprise just got shut down which was the last kind of that was the original nuclear uh nuclear aircraft carrier and all of the united states aircraft carriers are now nuclear powered i think the the kennedy was the last conventional one and i think it's been decommissioned now yeah so every one of them has a have two reactors on it they use the reactors for everything from uh, the propulsion to drive the screws on the back of the boat to um, or back of the ship to um, you know, providing electricity to run everything on the ship to even providing steam to, for the for the catapults to launch the fighters off the deck. So, you know, it's they're really the lifeblood of the <laughs> of the of the ship. And it also allows them to have, you know, unlimited range. Essentially, the range is limited by how much aircraft fuel and how much food they can carry. You know, so that's. That they're not trying to use, they don't have to use the same fuel the aircraft is using. You know, they have a very dense, up, high, very high power density fuel. You know, you don't, they were typically the A4W uh, fleet, which is what all the current uh, current uh, aircraft carriers are. You know, they have, they have a 20 year lifetime on the reactor, and their plant, most of them are going to probably be refueled once, so the, the hull will last about 40 years. Wow, that's incredible stuff. I mean, so I'm curious. Uh, about your experience on Project Prometheus uh, in, in accordance with the Navy and how, you know, sort of what the intention of that project was and, and you know, where that was headed before it got shut down. Yeah, so the plan, so it was uh, NASA had gotten, had, uh, had some interest in sending a, a very uh, high-powered probe to, or surveyor to survey some of the moons of Jupiter. So I think it was... Um, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. So, you know, Europa's got the frozen 
you know, it's like got the ice on the surface, so they know, pretty, they know there's water. They, there's at least frozen water, and they're suspicious there's liquid water underneath. Uh, and so they wanted to survey these moons that could, you know, have water and life on them. But they to do all the to run all the instrumentation that they need to do to do all the analysis that they want to be able to do and be able to go into go into like orbit of one moon and then break orbit and go into an orbit of another moon. It takes a lot of power, and you just, you know, and it's so far out there. It's you know, it's past you know, it's, the, it's in the deep, so, you know, the far solar system. So you know, you can't use can't use conventional rockets because you know you'll run out of mass <laughs> trying to do all these maneuvers. Uh, you can't use solar out past about. Mars, because the you know the energy of the sun drops off as one over r squared. So why we get you know I'm sure you know we get around a thousand <laughs> watts per meter cubed here, a meter squared here on Earth of solar flux. Well, it's going to be less than a watt per meter squared out there. So you can't use solar. So that leaves uh, some kind of nuclear propulsion is really the main option. Um, and so it was going to use um, a nuclear reactor that would produce the the, the size was never fully defined, but it was going to be somewhere around half a megawatt uh, thermal and maybe have a 20% efficiency, so maybe 100 uh, kilowatts uh, electric. Um, and that was going to drive ion thrusters. So I, they, so in, anytime you move in space, you have to project mass. Um, but the, the great thing about ion thrusters is that they have a very high specific impulse, which means that they eject the particles at extremely high velocities. So that lets you get the most use out of your the mass you have, so they were going to use like argon or something that then would uh, be electrically charged and uh, accelerated through an electric field, uh, and then eject this ion out the back that would be at extremely high velocities. So, so it was a very mass efficient. It's a very mass efficient way of propelling the spacecraft. Granted, that it's going to be very slow. It's going to take, you know because you basically you're only providing a few pounds of thrust at any given time. Uh, but you know, it, it would just accelerate the whole way there, and then halfway or halfway there, and then halfway through the, the the journey, it would turn around and start decelerating to enter orbit of whatever moon they were going to do first. And so the, the nuclear reactor was going to provide the power for that through some uh, turbines that were going to just produce you know, electricity. Uh, one of the challenges for um, nuclear power in space, though, is the heat rejection. So, like I said, you know, it's a 20% efficient process. So um, Depending on your cycle, um, but 20 it's 20 to 40 percent that one because we we're going to keep it simple It was probably going to be on the lower end of efficiency And so you've got to actually get rid of that other 80 percent of the heat <laughs> that you generate that you're not using to produce electricity And so if you look at like the pictures of the spacecraft, but it's this giant flat <laughs> Triangle and it, what it is it'll kind of look like solar arrays on the pictures, but they're actually radiators and you have to radiate that heat out to space because there's no there's no mass in space to, you know, normally on the terrestrial plants, we use water or something to dump the final heat to, and you dump it into a river or a lake or a pond. Uh, but in space, you can't do that. So it has to, you have to radiate it uh, out into space. And so you have these giant flat radiators that have the coolant running through them to, to actually reject all that excess heat. Wow, that's truly unbelievable. Do you, do you think that that design or that technology will be used or... Uh, is there still potential for that technology to be used in space uh, propulsion? Yeah, I think I think so. Um, it's if you want to do anything, you know, past Mars, it's really the only option is to use some kind of nuclear power and nuclear propulsion um, because you just can't get the uh, you know, like I said, solar and chemical uh, rockets and chemical propulsion won't get you there. Uh, so it's it's really the only option in the outer solar system. So I think I think it has a chance to come back, but there has enough scientific interest in it and political support to do it you know it's not we're, we're not making money doing that obviously it's a purely scientific endeavor so it has to have the support of the government you know and nasa so and nasa's nasa's administrator change which is why the, pro, the project got canceled and he had he had a more of a focus on you know international space station and kind of nearer term projects and that kind of thing so it, he, his focus was less on kind of reaching out to the outer solar system on these large projects. Sounds like we need to get Elon Musk on the case. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He, he, he could probably, he could fund it probably. <laughs> I mean, for, for what he wants to do, you know, like uh, if we're going to, he wants to move a million people to Mars, uh, right. and you, like the moon as some sort of refueling station. Seems like uh, nuclear would be, you know, the, 
the most efficient option for, for all those yeah. numbers? Yeah, actually, NASA does have a, they, I think it started a couple of years ago, I'm not exactly sure, but they have a project called Kresge, that, um, they're what it's called, a, what, the kilopower reactor using sterling technology, I think. So it's a, it's a much low, but it's, it's kind of geared towards doing like a moon-based uh, power plant or something, you know. Um, it's a very low power, like 10 kilowatts or something thermal, so. Or maybe maybe even 10 kilowatts electric. I'm not sure, but it's in the several kilowatt range. You know, tens you know, around 10 kilowatts. Uh, so it'd be enough to run, easily run like a base on the moon or something. And they they actually built a little reactor and and, and tested it to do the demonstration of it. You know, because it's it's you know self controls as the power goes up. The, you know, the temperature goes up and it has a negative feedback so that it just kind of maintains its own. It's very low maintenance. It kind of just operates itself. Uh, it's meant to be a very simple, you know, low power, so you don't need a ton of radiators, that kind of thing. Uh, and then it uses a Stirling engine, which um, it's, a, it's a a gas cycle that typically is run with pistons. It's just a you have a hot side and a cold side, and you have the, a couple of pistons that are going back and forth on the hot or cold side. Uh, it's it's a very simple. It's nice because it's a very simple design of technology, whereas like. For Jupiter IC Moon Orbiter on the Prometheus project, we were going to use something called the Brayton cycle, and so it's you know this gas cycle that has these pretty big turbines. You know they're complex machines that rotate at very high RPM, whereas like these little Stirling engines can be very robust and have very you know have, they have moving parts, but it's, they're minimal and you know there's a lot less things that can go wrong on them. Wow, I'm excited to see where where that uh, you know see some technological development in that area. Anything space related is like you know it's hard to conceive of and hard to imagine what kind of uh, innovations could really change the game there to see if, you know, we make larger leaps in that direction in our lifetime than maybe we can conceive of right now. Yeah, there's definitely a huge potential there. I mean, uh, and I, there are some technical like, you know, things to work out, but no, there's nothing that's not outside our, that's outside of our current technical ability. It's just a matter of the, the will to do the, you know, the funding and will to do it is what the will and the funding. <laughs> yep. I wonder how much science is limited by those two things. It's, it's, it's probably disappointing if you truly knew. Yeah. You probably don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, one of the other areas that you mentioned that you are currently working on and have worked on in the past is boiling phenomenon, which, uh, seems, you know, like, like I, or I think a lot of people, when they think of nuclear, they don't re realize that most plants are, uh, you know, just water, you know, boiling water and, and using a steam turbine. So was it, you know, is it an interest or, or a uh, pursuit to find more efficient means or to just understand that boiling process? Uh, yeah. What is your area of study around there? Yeah. So most of the, we're trying to understand it better. Yeah. So I'm like you, I was, I was, I was very disappointed in high school when I learned out that the nuclear, nuclear power wasn't some magical production of power, but it was just a hot rock that boiled water. You know, that's how all the plants in the United States work right now. They're all what call, are called light water reactors. So they use just regular water, you know, like you pull out of your tap. But the only, the only difference being is that it's extremely clean. Um, and so they use the light water for both uh, moderation. So that's to control the nuclear reaction. They slow down the neutron. It's used to slow down the neutron because the water has a lot of hydrogen in it. You know, it's H2O. And a neutron is roughly the same size as a hydrogen atom. So it, and when it collides with hydrogen atoms, it can reduce a lot of energy just from the conservation of momentum. Um, and so it's used to both uh, slow down the neutrons and control the nuclear reaction, as well as uh, cool, cool the, uh, the core. And so, uh, and pressurized water reactors operate at temperature. So they, they don't, you don't produce the steam in the reactor, but it goes through a secondary thing called a steam generator that then produces the steam and drives the turbines. But in boiling water reactors, you actually boil the water right in the core, produce the steam right in the core, and then it goes to the steam generators in a BWR. And so one of, one of the uh, issues is to, um, one of the, actually the limiting thing on like a, for instance, a pressurized water reactor on how much heat you can get out of it is it's not limited by you know the nuclear action you can run you can increase the nuclear power as much as you want until you melt all your fuel if you want to but what the what's limiting is this transition from nucleate boiling to film boiling so in nucleate boiling which is what you know you've everyone's seen this at home when you boil a pot of pasta you know and you boil the water you see these little bubbles grow on the bottom uh, they 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 grow and eventually depart and then go up you know and then rise to the liquid 
uh, when it's still subcooled, like you know, it's not a 100, 100 degrees Celsius or 210 Fahrenheit yet, the bubbles will collapse before they hit the top because they recondense because the water is not at saturation temperature. And then when you get to saturation, then the bubbles actually will survive to the top. That's when you see the rolling boil in your in your pot of water. Um, but if you have a high enough heat flux, which your home stove <laughs> won't be able to do for you, uh, you, what can actually happen is you get so many bubbles that they all coalesce. Um, the mechanism for how this happens is somewhat disputed among everybody, but essentially they all co coalesce and you create a vapor film on the surface. And the, and that more and it more or less stops the boiling process, and you have this huge you know, this vapor blanket that has really poor thermal properties, so it doesn't conduct heat very well. Uh, that, and that forms on the surface, and then you're not transferring heat, so your your heat transfer goes down by a factor of like a thousand. And so if that if that occurs, this, this process is called critical heat flux or the boiling crisis. And you have a constant heat flux on the bottom, like on your stove, the temperature of that surface will just rise astronomically fast into, astron into very high temperatures, like thousands of degrees in a, in a couple of seconds if you have a high enough heat flux like in a nuclear reactor. And so nuclear reactors are all designed to avoid this transition by a huge safety margin because we don't want that to happen because essentially we would, you know, wherever that would occur, you would melt the fuel in a very short period of time. Not, not the fuel, but melt the fuel cladding, the stuff that surrounds the fuel in a very short period of time. And so we're since that's what's really limiting nuclear reactors on how much power they can produce um, we're, uh, for a given size and volume of core, uh, we're looking at ways to uh, change the surface to, to move that transition to a higher heat flux uh, so that we can push more heat through the surface uh, and, and still be in this nuclear boiling regime that everyone's so familiar with. Wow. So, so the implication of you know, understanding this technology, understanding boiling better is that you can make nuclear reactors that perform better. Yeah, and, and the, the, the thing with this, with, uh, like enhancing the critical heat flux is even, it could even be applied to current generation reactors, you know, not even having to build a new one, but you know, just modifying, you know, modifying the license of a current reactor to upgrade its power because you can, you know, you now know that you have a higher CHF limit. And so if they're, if they're machinery, you know, they're, uh, turbo machinery that produces the electricity can support it, which a lot of them are, you know, are rated, you know, or they have a little bit of margin there. You can operate nu your nuclear power plant and actually produce more power from the same plant. And actually multiple plants throughout the United States have gotten power upgrades over the year. years. So nuclear power is still about 20% of our uh, electricity production in the United States, but we haven't really built a plant for, you know, I don't know. It's a lot that we had a few scattered that got completed, but, you know, the mass, the mass building in the 70s and the 80s, you know, was kind of when all the plants were built. And so we haven't really built any more plants, but our power usage has gone up as a country, but it's still around 20% because all these power plants have gotten up rates where, you know, they went back and reevaluated, you know, all the margins, had better, had better technology for how everything was made and better understanding of the boiling process. And uh, they can actually, you know, say, okay, I'm actually have this, you know, I still can have a safe margin to this boiling crisis and have my power at this 10% higher, for instance. And so that's just, you know, that much more power they're producing with this for the same plant. Wow. So is there an idea of what to sort of the maximum uh, upgrade would be and, and what the cost of that could be? Yeah. So, I mean, at some point with the existing uh, machinery, uh, you're, you're limited, but I mean, as far we've in the lab, we've been able to demonstrate improvements of critical heat flux, of of a hundred percent, so basically doubling, you know, the amount of power that you can put through a surface before you hit critical heat flux. Um, so on on the lab scale and on we've, we've, these uh, surfaces have been demonstrated. Some people have even you know maybe even 200 percent increase in the critical heat flux uh, value, and so that that's directly proportional to how much power you could get out of the reactor. Obviously, this is we, you have, still have to have all your safety margins for all your uncertainties and everything that have to be stacked on top of that. But you know the the increase is pretty is pretty uh, uh, significant that you can get. Yeah, that, that sounds significant, especially, you know, not only retrofitting, you know, existing reactors, but also in, in establishing new ones, it seems like you'd need half as many to, to do the same, you know, amount of work. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, and the power density is so much higher, you know, because there, there's what, what the cost of nuclear power plants is all the, you know, 
the capital cost of building the thing. Now, like I said, the fuel is extremely cheap, but the capital cost is expensive. So if you can make a gigawatt electrical reactor that's, you know, half the size, that's that's a huge cost savings, right? Because a lot of the, for the traditional like Gen 2 reactors, like we're out in the, that are all the current fleet, you know, what most of the, there's the, the huge cost of the containment building that's used, you know, there to, as the last barrier of having radioisotopes be released. You know, that's a huge cost. There's a huge cost for the machine, you know, uh, manufacturing this giant pressure vessel that the core sits in, you know, so if you can reduce all those by a factor of two, that's a, that's a huge cost savings on the right up front too, which is the, which is the big, big impediment for nuclear power is the capital cost. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious if, you know, or at what point nuclear will start to, you know, scale down uh, to be more feasible. I mean, I, I have a feeling that if it was, uh, you know, a smaller construction project overall, it might be, uh, you know, that kind of direction might be something that like the public opinion would be more open to instead of these massive uh, undertakings. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what the where the small modular reactors or SMRs are. That's the that's the area they're targeting. So the, the idea of a small modular reactor is that instead of having this you know giant site that you have to like you know you license this site and you build the you build the thing on site, which everyone knows any any construction that happens at a remote location costs way more than doing it in a factory. Um, so the idea of these small modular reactors is that it's a small unit. Uh, it's modular so they can be, you know, if you need two or three, you just have two or three, you know, that are built and installed at your location. But they're, you know, maybe it's, they're not going to be gigawatt electric, but maybe, you know, a few mega, tens of megawatts electric. Um, and then you can put the one, how many ever you need in a given location. Uh, they're, you know, they're, the, the idea is that they're small, simple, easy to maintain and all self-contained uh, and they're built in a, mostly built in a factory with just a minimal install on site, uh, you know, so that you can kind of take advantage of, you know, manufacturing technology and whatnot, rather than having to do all this construction, you know, at a, at a remote location. So there's a few companies doing that. Probably the best known would be like New Scale. They're kind of, they're fairly far along in the licensing process with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Uh, I'm not sure how long it will actually take them. They say, I think they say in another five years or so, they should have a, have a, have it ready to be built, but we'll see. But they, they have a similar cost per kilowatt hour, megawatt hour, uh, but they're but you can but they're easily scalable. So per per kilowatt hour installed. What what would uh, be the size or approximate size of one of those uh, you know smaller units? Uh, yeah. So new scale, I'm not exactly sure. So a, like a typical like reactor is you know like a current PWR, the fuel elements are um, like 14 feet tall, you know, and there's 140 of them, or maybe 170, a little less than 200 elements, you know, in the, in the reactor core, you know, so it's a huge, you know, many, many feet diameter, like, you know, tens of feet uh, for the diameter and for the height. Uh, whereas one of these, you know, could potentially be um, maybe like, maybe less than 10 feet and maybe like, so it'd probably be a similar height, um, but the idea that they have the the rec they actually put the steam generators right into the reactor vessel, so it actually saves them on containment, um, on building the just giant containment dome, because so, they have the 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 secondary side and the steam generator right in the uh, right in the the pressure vessel. So they'd still be they're not going to be tiny, you know. You're not going to put them on, not going to put them in, put them on your flatbed of your truck but you know there's something that could be shipped on a semi truck pretty re pretty reasonably so like about maybe like a shipping container size yeah yeah and maybe wow. even less yeah i mean that that sounds you know like if you could localize nuclear energy it seems to be you know sort of a crazy breakthrough yeah i mean that's one of the problems with the giant plants is you you know you have to cite them you know when the Inter nuclear regulatory commission has you cite them you know you've got to be like okay i've got i i've got to put this somewhere that's safe enough to do so and you know but if there was an if there was some kind of incident that you know the population you know could evacuate in time and that kind of stuff but but by the same token you don't want to put them out in the middle of nowhere because then you got to transmit electricity you know hundreds of miles which is which is expensive you yeah, know, so that's kind of like <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, basically the issue California is facing now, you know, importing electricity from the Pacific Northwest and, and, you know, Nevada and Arizona more so than producing it themselves, which, you know, reduces the, you lose most of the energy in the transportation process. Right. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very inefficient way. I mean, that's why like nuclear reactors, you know, traditional, but you know, there's some of the early ones were built fairly near population centers, you know, um, like in Japan obviously did that as well. If you look at where all Japan's nuclear power plants are, you know, they put them all along the East coast of their, of their, of, the, of their islands, you know, there, because that's where uh, kind of the big population centers are. And that's the oceans right there. So that's a good heat sink for rejecting heat. Unfortunately, it's also where they get tsunamis. So, Yeah. So in, inconveniently located, which I imagine is probably one of the constraints of California as well with earthquakes and uh, some of those. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause earthquakes, yeah. Earthquakes are a big concern for, uh, for power plants and, you know, they're, they're all designed for up to some, you know, some earthquake on the Richter scale, depending on where they're sited at. And so that's one of the challenges for these like modular reactors, because they have to basically be, you know, be designed to go anywhere. And so that does increase the challenge of designing it because traditionally like all the, all the plants in the United States that are currently operating are more or less boutique reactors because they're, they were all one of a kind designs. They're all a little different than, than, than the other one. So like even like a site that has two or three reactors, they may all be slightly different. You know, they might have different power conversion equipment and they may have slightly different fuel assembly designs, you know, so it's each one was designed and, uh, and then, and then designed for the site as well. Cause a lot of times, you know, if you're building in California, you know, you're, uh, you have to have better structures holding all the reactor core and all the components and all the safety systems to be able to withstand whatever the earthquake, you know, the hundred year or 500 year earthquake is for that area. Yeah. So basically up until now, nuclear hasn't been like a scalable, uh, you know, uniform process. It's been, each one has been its own unique project. Right. Exactly. And so that's, and that's even, even the generation three, which we don't, in this country, we're only building, we've got two actually under construction down in Vogel. Uh, they've got a couple of AP1000s with our generation three, generation three plus type of reactor. They're better, you know, they have more passive safety, you know, station blackout event. They're not going to release uh, um, isotopes to the environment and things like that. Um, and so even those are, you know, are, have, have potential to be, to be used. Wow. That's interesting stuff. So in, in there, uh, the technology that you're working on with, with increasing the effectiveness of the existing reactors or, or, you know, related to boiling phenomena, is there any, like, is there a company involved that's licensing that technology or trying to, you know, monetize that technology or? Uh, yeah. So our, our, the company that's funding, we've got one project with Exelon who's, uh, who's, we're working on some coatings for putting on a uh, fuel rod where they're going to put a lead test rod into one of their reactors. Uh, to test a small, you know, like foot long unfueled section uh, to see how it performs in the, uh, in their reactor. So that one has a few more objectives other than just increasing critical heat flux, but um, it's also um, some things for enhancing the lifetime of the, of the, of the fuel cladding material. Um, for, there's kind of, a, there's a problem with hy hydrogen in the, they use hydrogen in PWRs to kind of suppress oxygen. And so, and you can end up with some free, free hydrogen that can end up getting into the metal and making it brittle. And so that's kind of undesirable. So that coating is supposed to also uh, address this critical heat, the, as well as enhancing critical heat flux, uh, prevent this uh, ingress of hydrogen into the metal and also try and be <laughs> uh, crud resistant. So I guess I haven't mentioned crud, but crud's another thing that uh, um, affects nuclear reactors. It's, uh, it's literally just oxides that build up on the outside of the uh, fuel and it just, you know, it's bad for heat transfer. It's chemically bad because it can trap some chemicals and create local kind of bad chemical environments inside the, uh, inside the core. And so this, that, that, that company is actually sponsoring this project to kind of have a coating that kind of solves all these problems and, and it will, and, you know, so they're, they're very serious about it. What's interesting to me is that from what you're describing, it sounds like there is a range of technologies that are on the forefront that are being developed or, or worked on or thought about that if, you know, breakthroughs are made, you know, will dramatically change 
the landscape of what nuclear is capable of or how effective it can be or how small it can be. Um, and what you mentioned before is that what's mostly holding it back is, is a will and funding. Is there, is there anything else that's you know, preventing these technologies from, from you know, expanding or coming to the forefront? Um, so I, the, everything in the nuclear industry moves slow. And that's the other problem. So it's, in the United States, it's very heavily, it's very heavily regulated. Uh, you know, for, and, and it should be, you know, it needs to be, you know, it's, it's a, it has potential to, you know, it has a lot of potential to release, you know, stuff to the environment that we don't want. Right. So it's, it's very heavily regulated. So it's slow getting stuff through the licensing process with the NRC. So uh, Terra Power, for instance, is that, that is actually the company that Bill Gates is funding on nuclear and nuclear innovation. You know, and so they were originally uh, the because the uh, process in the United States is so cumbersome and so slow, and it's also the licensing process is also heavily geared towards whitewater reactors, which are these ones you know that use just regular water as a coolant and a moderator. And so, like New Scale, for instance, they're doing a whitewater reactor just so that they can get it through the licensing process in a reasonable amount of time. But because the NRC isn't really geared towards these advanced reactor concepts, be it you know, something that uses like, you know, liquid you know, molten salt reactors or liquid metal reactors that use different kinds of coolants and have very different, you know, very different operating characteristics and very different neutronic characteristics and very different accident scenarios that can occur. They're not very well geared for that. So it's a huge cost to, uh, to get that through the NRC because you essentially have to pay the NRC to develop these abilities to analyze your design. Um, and so that's why originally, the Terra Power is going to build their first reactors overseas, um, and then they've, which has kind of been a problem for them because the current uh, environment with the current political situation has made it where the U.S. basically has prevented them from exporting the technology. Um, so, so that's 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 the other kind of big impediment, not just political, but a you know a bureaucracy. <laughs> Yeah, kind of in place, and it's also a bureaucracy that's very geared towards one specific technology. That's uh, that's interesting. Are, are there other countries that are you know competing in this space, or you know as aggressively trying to develop nuclear technology as the United States? Yeah, so China, China is aggressively developing nuclear technology, and you know they're they're both uh, trying to get Western and. Uh, companies to invest there and they're buying Western designs and building them there. And they're also trying to develop their own, you know, advanced nuclear industry there. Cause that's, you know, you know, there's obviously, you know, a billion and a half people there. They're, they're, they, you know, that they can't just burn coal and oil for their power. They have, they already, you know, they've had huge problems with the air quality in a lot of their uh, uh, urban areas. And so to them, nuclear is a very attractive option to, uh, to meet their growing energy needs, which are growing at, you know, astronomical rates as their standard of living in that country and China constantly is going up. So yeah, they're, they're definitely, China is definitely probably a huge compet is a huge competitor. Uh, South Korea is also very, uh, very forward looking on nuclear power. They, they have, you know, they, they work, uh, they collaborate a lot with uh, the West as well with the, with the nuclear development. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that sounds like alarm bells to me hearing that China is aggressively moving that direction. Cause unlike the United States, China probably does not have as much, they don't have to worry about public opinion or, you know, they can probably cut through many of the bureaucracies if they see the potential of this technology. Um, right. And with, with what we're talking about here, like making energy, you know, basically achieving energy abundance, you know, if, if one country truly achieves that at a rate that's, you know, faster than another, it's, it's a massive competitive advantage in so many other ways. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so, some people also worry about that. Like you mentioned, you know, there's, it's slow, it's slow in the United States for getting new technologies through and, you know, for nuclear power plants. Um, and, but some of that is well merited, you know, because, <laughs> you know, you want to make sure you want to give it the proper scrutiny before you put it out in the field. And, you know, some people are concerned that, you know, in China, they may not, you know, they're, they're moving fast and have a huge power energy demands that they need to meet and that they may not, you know, but they, their home built or home designed reactors may not go through the same level of scrutiny that, you know, they might in a Western country. So that's also, you know, a concern that people have. Um, but, the, you know, they also want to, they've also built a lot of, you know, Western designs as well. So 
they're you know they're 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 going they're taking all avenues. Yeah, that's uh, so that it's it's that balancing act of you want to move fast but not too fast so that you know nothing unsafe occurs. It's understandable. So, is, is there if you were to like have a maybe like a call to arms for the for the you know United States nuclear industry? What what do you think is you know what should people be aware of? What should everyday people be aware of in in regards to you know what the industry needs and what you know they can do to you know help move it along? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Um, one is like uh, our, our country doesn't really have an energy policy, <laughs> so that's that's kind of the problem. It's just kind of left up to utilities and you know and entrepreneurs to kind of come up with uh, new ways of doing of you know producing power or, or you know innovating on nuclear. Uh, but we don't really have like a po- you know an energy policy in the United States for like you know where should we be in. 20 years or 30, you know, which, which is important, especially if you're talking about, you know, climate change and whatnot, that that we actively need to investigate or actively need to uh, think about, because for instance, you know, like right now, like, you know, natural gas is just so cheap that it's hard for other, other renewables or anything else to compete because, you know, natural, we have so much natural gas and it's so cheap and the plants are cheap to build. You just build a natural gas plant, flick it on when you need it and flick it off when you don't need it. Um, And so that's a, that's a huge problem, you know, for wanting to limit carbon. So I think one of the things is there needs to be a discussion of how, because we're not, we're not properly pricing that natural gas when it's being sold because they're buying the natural gas, but they're not paying for the, the, the CO2 that comes out the stack. You know, that's not being, that's not being given any monetary value or any monetary consequence. And so that's one of the things that has to happen to kind of make these very cheap fossil fuels, uh, not be as competitive because they have a cost, but that cost is not being captured in the cost of the fuel. Um, and so the, the, there needs to be some kind of policy to kind of handle how we're going to, ha- how we're going to, you know, give a value for how much, what is the cost of emitting CO2 for instance. And so there's you know, lots of, lots of, lots of, you know, people want to do a carbon tax cap and trade. There's lots of ways to approach it, but the, the ultimate, the ultimate problem is that there's not, that cost isn't being evaluated. You know, it's just basically we're, we're assuming that, that there's no, there's no problem with emitting CO2 in the current like energy environment structure of how everything's structured. There's essentially you know, no cost to doing that. So that's, that's probably the biggest problem with not just nuclear, but all, you know, any other renewables, whether it be solar wind, you know, is that they're, they're very low carbon, but they don't have, they can't, you know, in some cases they can't be competitive because they're, you know, the carbon's free <laughs> for a utility to emit. I see. Interesting. Is there anything else that, you know, like any other, cause that, that one actually, I've never really understood the, you know, like the, a good argument for a, a carbon tax, but that actually makes total sense to me. Yeah. Cause there, there is a cost associated with it, you know, calculating the costs of climate change are difficult. I think, you know, it's not an easy task to do. You know, and trying to, you know, because there, there are these changes going on with the climate, but it's hard, you know, and people put these, you know, people try and put economic models to it and, and, and evaluate it. And I, I'm not in a position to really know whether they're good or bad, but I know it's insanely difficult to put a cost on it. But there is a cost to us as a people of doing that and it has to be evaluated. Um, as far as more of a nuclear like centric um, thing, like I said, the, um, the I, I'm sorry, can you, what, what, what specifically would you, were you asking? I'd just say like, if there's one thing like an everyday person could know or, or understand or, or, you know, if there's anything that they can do to help move, you know, public opinion or technology along, anything to sort of help the industry out. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, another, one of the other problems nuclear faces is that, you know, no one really wants it. It's, it's kind of poorly understood, you know, no one wants it in their backyards, the, the NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard. They may not be opposed to it, but they don't want it, you know, right next to them. Um, so having maybe, you know, just the, one of the biggest thing is public opinion, you know, and, and that's something that needs to be kind of driven on the, you know, both the American Nuclear Society could probably do more as well as, you know, uh, stakeholders that have nuclear, nuclear power plants. That they could do a little more to kind of, you know, inform the public about it. We just kind of sit here in the background. You don't hear anything about nuclear until there's some kind of incident. You know, it's one of those things. You only make the paper when, when there's something bad happens. So, you know, just uh, having a having a better 
understanding of it if we could do more I think education you know especially in the in the lower grades you know like uh, elementary middle high school of educating people about nuclear power um, that's something that I think our industry's done a very bad job of you know because nuclear has been around for years and years and years but still you know people who have gone through school and they don't really learn much about it or what it what its benefits are what its issues are and uh, you know and where it should fit into our energy uh, layout of the United States so absolutely that'd be the other thing well Brent I mean I really appreciate you you know joining me today to to share your thoughts on this and, and talk about some of these technologies because I mean it's it's conversations like this that we can blast out on the internet you can share and people can hear and uh, the more of this kind of you know education that people get the the more you know we can change public perception ourselves yep yeah I'm, uh, that's 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 our biggest problem is getting getting the information out there and making people aware of what the you know the, the costs and benefits of everything are and you know our society i guess ultimately has to make the decision but it'd be nice it's good to make it with a with having all the facts so absolutely well Brenna, again, I really appreciate you you joining me today. Is there any sort of like final uh, words you'd like to leave with the the listeners uh, before we wrap up? Uh, no, I don't think so. I appreciate you having me as well. I, I enjoyed it. I hopefully uh, we can hopefully we can uh, inform some more people about nuclear. So hopefully, absolutely, hopefully, uh, it was well received. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And I'm excited to see you know the innovations in the space and know that people like you are working on it. And I, I wish you the best of luck uh, for all of our sake. So thank you very much. Yep, thank you for having me, and uh, good luck to you on your solar endeavor. I, uh, hopefully that works out for you. It seems like it's a big thing in California now. It's a big thing in California. Hopefully it'll be a big thing nationwide. Uh, that's where I'm pushing, and then hopefully uh, I can help invest in nuclear uh, in the future. Okay, sounds good. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.